Okay, that's us recording. Okay, here we go. Uh, good morning. Um, nice one this morning. We've actually got a decent guest on. So you'll, everyone listening to this podcast will know him. So this morning we've got Ben, obviously. We've got Luke. We've also got um, Colin Armstrong, who you'll know as Chris Ryan. Um, now, I think we're going we're gonna to keep things quite sort of casual. Uh, we're going to talk about... The sort of themes that we normally talk about in this podcast, so we don't tend to talk about all the shit that we used to do. We talk about who we are now and how we got to be how, who we are now, generally. Uh, now, I don't think I'm alone in this. So we're, we're still going to ask you why you joined and stuff to begin with. Um, but I know one of the reasons that I joined, and I'm sure there's a generation, is basically because, you know, when I was growing up, I read your book, your, your original book. And I know this my generation, I'm sure Ben's generation as well. Uh, that's at least an influence on why we joined. Uh, sorry, I, I should probably say good morning, mate. I know we've already said good morning, but good morning. <laughs> How are you doing? <laughs> yeah, we always have a preamble before we start recording. Um, yeah, so why would you say, you, how, why did you join? What's your path into the military in the first place? Well, I mean, I came from a the Northeast and um, my pa- parent, well, my father was in construction um, and there, was, there wasn't much money. And all I wanted to do was travel. And it's probably not the right reason to join the army, but I just wanted to see the world. And in them days, you know, we had bases all over the place. Um, and um, I went as a, a boy soldier and I passed all, all the exams and I was about to go to Litchfield and I got um, a jaundice. So I had to miss that intake and the Army Careers Office then said, you can come back when you're 17, 18. And during that period, I had a cousin who was in the uh, territorial SAS, 2-3 SAS. And he said, just come up and uh, you can come out with us on the hills. This is pre-embassy um, uh, days. So nobody really knew anything about the SAS, uh, other than the fact you were in the military or you were a historian. The average civvy didn't know anything. So I went up there, and because I was too young to pass their selection, I did three selections, and on two of them, I was the only person to pass, but I wasn't young enough to go down. To, I was, wasn't old enough, sorry, to go down to Brecon. So I knew them roots like the back of my hand, but I was like a pig in shit. You know, normal guys that were turning up for the TA used to look at me and say, you must be mad wanting to walk all them hills. But I was just, it was for me. And I did it, but it was the biggest mistake I did in my life. Because what happened is when I eventually passed, I think 17 or whatever, it, it sucked me in and I was having a great time. And then I got a job at various places, one in a garage, one in a print shop. And then I could go out every weekend with a TA. And it wasn't until we got one like PSI um, from G Squadron and he came up and he said, listen, son, you wanted, you, you need to join the army. Because um, again, I was probably a confused soldier that was at the TA. And it was then that it was the Falklands uh, kicked off. And um, I, there was a radio, I was working on a building site and a, a, there was a, an announcement on the, um, on the radio that um, the TA had gone off with Hereford to go to the Falcons. And I was like, fuck me, they haven't phoned or they haven't contacted me. And I legged it to a telephone box, phoned in, and 
the secretary, Christine, said, no, no, that was a mistake. But she said, Colin, you're the only person that's phoned in. And at that point, I thought, I need to join the army. My next mistake was, I just wanted to get into the SAS. And uh, what I should have done is gone down to the depot for a couple of years and then joined the regiment. Because no matter what happens, um, and I was quite naive, when you go down on selection, when you're in the TA, you're, you're not stigmatized, but you're, you're monitored very closely. Now, I'll spin forward and I'll, I'll, I'll come back to that. Mm -hmm. When I was a member of Training Wing, when we got the new recruits coming in, I used to go to the, I used to make the same mistake. I would look at the board to see how many guys from the TA was on and that I'd watch them to see what their skill sets were like. So going back, I, I turned up, selection was the same for everybody else. You know, all you do, one day at a time. Mm -hmm. Past, um, I worked hard in the jungle. I was conscious that people were, you know, the instructors were watching me, but that was fine. Didn't drop a bollock, got through. And when I passed out, um, I was sent down to the depot um, to, do, to do my six months. But obviously, I was getting fast-tracked because I didn't need, you know, to learn how to iron a shirt, mm -hmm. you know, the marching and shit like that. But the funniest thing was I was sent down with a guy from the Navy. And, I, and Larry, um, I'll not say second name, he had really long hair. And I said, Larry, when you turn up on, in January, make sure you have your hair buzzed right down. So, I mean, I had my hair and it's just playing the game and screwing the freaking nut. Yeah. He, turned, he turned up and his hair's longer than it was when he was on selection. I'm like, fuck it. Like, you know. <laughs> so we get, we get marched in. It was Fred Tolan, who was the RSM, marched in in front of the old uh, uh, commanding officer. He gave us a brief. He said, you'll be here and to, to learn. And, you know, I was like, yes, sir. Fred marched us out and then Fred bollocked me because Larry had long hair. And he said, take him. It was in Browning Barracks. He said, take him there, get a haircut, come back. Came out and Larry went, fuck him. Who does he think he's talking to? I'm like, fuck him. I said, don't put a target on my back. Just cut your fucking hair and play along. So anyway, I integrated into a, a platoon. He went somewhere to another platoon. And then just kept getting uh, up, upgraded, upsquatted until I ended up with them. It was where they go to Brecon first. Uh, they, they head up to do their map reading and a bit of field firing and everything else. Well, it, it, on one of the exercises, I had, there was a full screw. And this young lad, he was the instructor, but he couldn't navigate to save his ass. So I had to be respectful to him. And I went up and I just said, listen, um, we're going the wrong way here. And then chatted to him. Everything was fine. So I got on with them and they knew they were screwing the nut where Larry was fighting them and blocking them all the time. So they used to just give him fucking hell. And I, I would sit with the young lads on the nighttime because there was one instructor. He was a jock guy and uh, he was a corporal, but he was having um, family difficulties. So when he had an argument with his wife, which was usually around alcohol, he would come in and beat the fuck out of the uh, young Joes. So one, I, I just got fucking sick of it because there was a, a young ginger kid who was more than capable, but he, he had a nervous disposition. So I just went up to him and I said, listen, mate, fucking pick on me or let's go to the fucking RSM and sort this shit out. Now, fuck off because you can't come down here and do that. Well, he was put out and I thought things are going to go bad. But uh, there was another lad, I think his name was Nobby, it would obviously be Nobby Noble, but he was getting ready to go to the in He was the sergeant. 
he was very good. And so on a night time, rather than waste my time, I would sit with the, the young recruits with a map, compass, and fucking teach them um, navigation. And everything was going fine. Larry would bugger off on the weekend down to Pool or Portsmouth. It would be Portsmouth. And uh, so rather than waste my time, sit with the guys. And it, it was a cracking time. And then we, you know, we got fast-tracked all the way through. And there was one particular weekend, one of the lads from 3Para, he was an instructor, he was going up to Yorkshire for a, a wedding, but he had a Charlie G uh, lecture. And he, he said, fuck it. And I said, well, I'll take it. It's on a Friday afternoon. Everybody's fucked up. And he went, be sure. And I went, yeah, I'm fine. So anyway, got all the recruits in, doing the Charlie G. And then I heard the dreaded fucking brogues walking down the... Um, the corridor and I'm thinking fuck me and it was the CEO of um of training so he sat at the back I'm sweating like a rapist here and um because I know I'm going to get bollocked and I've just dropped this kid this other guy in so at the finish all he had to say was that I was in, in improperly dressed because I didn't have my stable belt on my wings on my jumper <laughs> <laughs> and I, was like, I didn't say fuck all I just said sorry <laughs> like this anyway we ended up being told that uh, we're, you know, we're, we're going back to Hereford. So again, I said to Larry, when we when we get marched in there, you stand to attention, you tell them we learned a lot, it was valuable, and it was great being with the guys, it was rewarding and everything else. And I said, we'll just get marched out. So get marched in, standing in front. CEO says to me, how was it? Rewarding, great, the guys are brilliant. Um, I've, I've learned a lot, which I had in terms of, unit and and the how the parachute regiment is formed and how you make young men into fighting machines mm -hmm. and they're motivated and um he turned to larry and he said uh, and what do you think he went i think it was a load of shit and a waste of time i i i nearly passed out and i'm standing to attention and i'm like that please like I just, like my my ticker was going, my heart rate was going like this. And the RSM just shouted, screamed, Armstrong, you know, fucking I'm like that. Like about turn, fucking marched out. And then I could hear them having this argument. And they like, fuck me. So that night we went out with all the staff. I packed my car. And um, as I'm walking back on the parade ground, I had a, an old Ford Granada. It looked like it had sunk into the um, into the parade ground. Look, it was a lad called uh, Scout Scott. He was a, a PTI. He yeah. let all my... That's Scout Scott Scott. Yes, yeah, yeah. This... <laughs> and, uh, it, well, I can remember seeing him, right? He was a, like the PTI. He's probably like trying to nick your tyres rather yeah. than... <laughs> run, no, because no, he, he was waiting for me to come in. And you know how big his tongue was? He was laughing and saying, yeah, fucking try and get your tires blown up. I was just wanting to escape from Browning Barracks. And um, there was one day I saw him going out uh, with a group of guys uh, to go over the old tank tracks. And he, he had his bell kit on in his Bergen. And I thought, yeah, fucking right. You haven't got the right weight on. Until I actually knew him. That guy, he, he was the opposite to looking fit, but he was such, he was a beast. Yeah. And he used to beast yeah. the shit out of us. I mean, I can remember on a beasting session up at uh, Dixie, Dixie's Corner. And I was absolutely knackered. And then the old uh, slop jockeys came up and uh, we all ate whatever was in there. And I'm sitting around and they said, who wants some ice cream? 
And the, some of the kids put their hands up and like, get your fucking hands down, get your hands down, put your hands down like this. And then it was the old Buffett. blocks of lard and then yeah. sit ups eating them. I'm thinking, guys, for fuck's sake, if it sounds too good, don't do it. Yeah. Anyway, I left, got back to Hereford and then... Um, well, I'm just trying to think. When I got back, oh yeah, got back there. Um, it was Johnny um, Crossland and um, oh, Dave, uh, uh, Wilson. Um, his son was in three power. He was killed in a, a roadside bomb. Uh, Don Wilson. He was a sergeant major. So me and Larry walks in, and he go. Uh, um, uh, Crossland goes. One of you fuckers didn't like it down there, did you? What? Now, so I held my tongue, and I'm waiting. And I fucking looks at Larry and said, you know, he, he, he didn't say anything. And then Crossland said, go around and see Dave Kemp. Uh, that's who finished. And then I just heard the eruption. And it was unnecessary. And, and the whole thing about, I think, I believe, is being in the SAS, you're only a fucking soldier with probably better kit to a certain degree to the rest of the army. You might be a little bit motivated, but you've got to show respect to everybody and never, ever think you're that fucking clever where you can't you can't absorb any information you know everybody's got something to give and uh anyway got into b squadron uh there was supposed to be a job on in aden where we were going to put a um hi robert Yeah, you're fucking muted, mate. Just, no, okay. just turn, is that is that all right? Got you, mate. Got you. Yeah. So that never happened. Um, then we went off to Botswana, and that's when um, I was. Well, I was. I went to Mountain Troop. Went to Botswana. That was my first uh, squadron trip, and that was when I first, well first saw one of my colleagues killed. He was my troop staff. He, he'd fallen on these hills called the Salido Hills, and he was killed. And then I was, you know, just. It was just a learning uh, curve from there. You know, we would do the SP team. We'd do, you know, um, the training. And we were in that, like, year circle. And over them 10 years, they just flew by, you know. Mm -hmm. And um, I, obviously, I was part of that team when the first Gulf War went on. I was, I was very disappointed in, in how it played out. Now, I'm sure you've all heard or have all said, we haven't got this kit at the minute, but if the real thing happens, you'll get it. Yeah. Well, I had more things on fucking exercise than I did on that um, operation. Like pistols went missing. It was um, the mapping, clothing, and just attitude. And I was always, with the SOPs, I was always taught, you know, um, ask questions and you know, push for it. And I can remember being ridiculed by a certain member of the authority or the hierarchy. Um, I asked what the weather was going to be like in, um, in Iraq. Then I asked what the border was going to be like. And this RSM said, Armstrong, are you getting a bit twitchy? And I was like, no, I'm, I'm still getting on the helicopter, but I'd like to, I'd like to know mm. what I'm getting into. And that it was that type of it, um, attitude that I was I was I was pretty horrified with, and then going to my S SQMS and asking him for a pistol, and then he said, "Who do you think you are, James Bond?" I'm like, 
It's a fucking secondary weapon. Yeah. And then claymores. Where's our claymores? They'd gone fucking missing. They were in a tent on camp and nobody knew. No claymores. So the sergeant major came up and he said, go and get some ice cream cartons from the, um, from the uh, canteen. Fill it with um, C4 and put some link in and put some decor in. They'll be great. And I'm like, are you fucking kidding me? They'll be fucking useless. And then there was other things. There was, there was a catalog of things. I knew when, when it went wrong, it would go badly wrong. And it was just a matter of timing. Mm-hmm. Um, the orders, um, again, the RSM said there was a, a set of orders. There wasn't a set of fucking orders. He, he was standing on the sideline talking about a squash, a squash competition in Hereford that he just missed. It was badly planned, so when it went wrong, it, it did go wrong. And sadly, it cost it cost three guys their lives. And, you know, one young guy, Bob Consiglio, I still feel he should have gotten a, a VC um, because he actually, and it was confirmed by the group, he was in a group of five, and he could see the Iraqis following it up, and he went down with his minimi to give them for covering fire. They split up and went... So he knew he was sacrificing his life. And it was confirmed by both groups that they could hear, you know, the minimi uh, blatting off. And then it went silent. And Bob had that, well, the criteria is where you go into action and you sacrifice your life for for colleagues. And I don't know, that was the next thing. When we came back, every fucker was scrambling for medals. And it, it fucking horrified me. And I, it was, I was saddened by it. You know, when we don't, I, I will, I don't believe anybody joins the army or the military to get medals, but being in that regiment fucking twists some people's minds and it's, it's, it's wrong. And now this is be, I'm, I'm being very negative about the regiment, but <clears throat> it's they There's some fucking cracking guys in there. They do some brilliant jobs. That Bravo two zero for some reason, fucking caught the public's imagination. And it was a, just a shit show. The regiment, like A&D squadron, were running around dominating Western Iraq, you know, to the point where they were told to go static. They were doing too much damage. And all of that stuff is, is kept down. Mm-hmm. And we, we, you know, put that fucking stupid patrol to the, to the head. Yeah. I think you, um, Gaz, you know, I mean, there's <clears throat> the Operation Red Wings. Um, yes. You know, uh, that was um, obviously glorified with Hollywood and everything else. I mean, that was an absolute fuck up as well. But that was that was done by people who aren't really OP or recce soldiers. Yet it was absolutely glorified. It was a, a four man team. You know, they they trying to establish an OP without comms. It was just absolute basics. Yet it was glorified. And and, and that's now they even got a museum for Red Wings. I mean, we saw some of the stuff with our cousins in pool who have got who actually have an anniversary dinner every year for an absolute fuck up. A lot of the times these fuck ups are are celebrated. Can I just go back to a point earlier, um, um, Colin? Obviously, you and I, uh, you know, we got to know each other quite well over the last year or so. Uh, we we talk a lot anyway. So obviously, this is stuff that you and I have spoken about before. Um, so the one thing about the SAS is the SAS. Uh, assumes you are a good soldier before you join. It assumes you you were the best of who you've come from before you came. Um, so selection doesn't actually train you to be a soldier. 
It's really selecting to see if you have the aptitude to be a special forces soldier. There are always going to be people who slip through the net and they're usually someone who's just fit enough to get through and then played the grey man. They often get found out within the first year anyway, which is which is good. Um, humility is a big point. I mean, we, we had guys who weren't good enough to soldier, so we sent them down to... Um, we sent them down to uh, juniors and they showed their true colours on juniors. When things got a bit testing, all they did is they reverted back to saying, well, I, I'm in the SAS. What the hell do I need to be on juniors for? Well, actually, you were shit. You weren't an infantryman. You didn't come from back from an infantry background. You were just fit enough to get in. Uh, funnily enough, they failed. They embarrassed the regiment. Um and actually, then they were they were there, then kicked out. And I was actually on selection with a guy that was was one of those people. And the problem that the regiment had at the time is it didn't know how to get rid of people and ensure those people knew they weren't good enough and didn't come back through the door. Humility is a massive part. I mean, I think any of us, if you get sent on a course, you play the game. I am guilty of it. Uh, you know, I've been on a few courses where I haven't necessarily thought I was too big time to be there. I just didn't want to be there. But however, you've got to play the game and humility is a, a, a massive part. And then just my, my point of carrying on there of, of um, your real training starts when you get into the regiment. That's where your real training starts. But what you have to do is have the humility of understanding, yes, you are not the dog's bollocks just because you're in the SAS. You need to then find where your weaknesses are, whether it's a, a field skills, whether it's a tech skills, whether it's whatever that is you need to pick that up i mean we are seeing now um soldiers coming through because this is a cultural problem where actually they um they didn't play in the woods as kids they didn't play in the woods as kids they didn't play in the fields they didn't make dens uh, they're very good at tech but they're not necessarily field soldiers so again this is a weakness across the board we need to pick up and all that happens is selection catches these people and eventually we we have a problem because eventually they then go towards uh, UKSF and they don't have the fundamentals and the foundations that we had, all of us here. Yeah, no, I um, get that. I mean, when, my time in the TA when I was there, I did more a &E exercises than I ever did with 2-2 SAS. Because in, when you got into 2-2, and as you've said, there is this thing, as soon as they get that beige berry on them, they think they're either John Wayne or Audie Murphy, and they're as hard as fuck. And they're not. And it's like, Going back to, say, Junior Brecken, I was sent on down to Junior Brecken. The way I looked at it was I'm representing the regiment here. And if I, if I fuck up, I've just fucked up in front of all of these, like, young corporals and, and then all the staff. I thought, fuck that. So I went down, and I had one guy, um, and you may have met him, but he had a big birthmark on it. It was like half a man, half a tomato. He was from one para, and... Um, he was a necky cunt and he wasn't a good soldier. And he said, oh, I hope you pass. And I was like, fuck you. So I came back with a distinction. And he said, oh, did you pass? I went, yeah, I got, I, I passed, mate. And then he found out I got the distinction. And that wasn't because I was going down there sucking somebody's cock. It was because I went down and I worked my fucking ass off. And again, sitting in that class, we had this, um, I've met him since, a guy called Jim Dempsey. And he, I think he was one para. And uh, it's where they start handing out the patrol kit and stuff like that. And I'm sitting waiting and that Charlie G's in the corner. And I'm fucking like, I know who's getting that. And I'm fucking <laughs> hell, like, you know. And sure enough, fucking Armstrong, Charlie G. I was like, 
baffled. But again, people would try and book the system where they used to say, you know, notebook in left pocket, you know, your fucking things in this pocket, that's in that pocket, that's in that pocket. You just do it because that's what they say, you know. So get on with it and do it. But the main thing for me was I wasn't going to let the regiment down by going there. But about two years later, a guy went down and he failed the fucking BFT. And he failed it twice. Mm. And I couldn't believe that. I mean, from that side, he did it. And, you know, there's a, probably 100 people on that course. And yet he didn't give a fuck. Mm. You're like, whoa, that, that is wrong. If you're representing the regiment on any type of course, as you said, you might want to be there, but you've got to work your ass off hard to to show these guys that you're on a different on a different pedestal to the rest of them. Mm-hmm. And and as it going back to personal skills, and I'll not mention his name, but I've, I've spoke to you about it. When we were in Iraq, there was a fucking guy smoking, and I was I was off stag sleeping, and I could smell the cigarette smoke. And that's what brought the young goat herder in. And then the goat herder compromised us. I was, I was freaking furious because the, there is a thing I believed when you get in the SES, you put them that black kit on, you feel like God, you walk around a camp, the young, young soldiers look you like God, and then you believe you're like God. Some regiment guys, and there was a lot of regiment guys killed in car crashes in Northern Ireland and other places in the world because they thought they were fucking... Because you're in the SAS, you're a great driver, and you're not. And then you end up killing yourself as well as, you know, fucking somebody else's life up. They've got to come down to a pedal and uh, a pedestal and realize that I, I know you've been embedded in, you know, in a conflict for over 20 years where ours was, was very brief. But you've got to be adaptable to either be in the SP team one minute then in the jungle the next minute, and then the desert the next minute. And when you go back to them, them, them other theaters, you go back to basics. And it, you don't have to have the brains of an archbishop to know how to make an OP, you know, how to hide, how to escape, how to evade, and, and all them little skills, like signaling and stuff like that. And I, again, I'm, I'm, I'm talking back in 1991, um, I kept up my Morse code skills where everybody said, no, we're on burst transmission now. You know, we've got sat, satcoms. That, must, that message I sent out to Cyprus was done on Morse code. And it wasn't one of our signalers. I just got on, I got on a guard net that was in Cyprus and it was a young signaler picked me up and I, I fucking tapped away, gave him the code word. And I said, you know, that basically we're compromised. We're heading back to the pickup and we need extraction. That was a skill everybody thought was bollocks to do. Mm-hmm. So, yeah, listen, there was a, there was a, we had this um, we had this Irish uh, QM. And I can remember, remember when I passed past selection and I was going for some kit, and he said, "Jordy, always remember there's somebody there that thinks you're a C-U-N-T. <laughs> and I was going. What? What's he mean by that? But it doesn't matter who you think you are. There's somebody way better than you um, from that yeah. side. But anyway, we're digressing. No, totally. I mean, the humility thing is a massive, it's a massive one for us. It's one that we we talk about it quite a lot. Like, um, it's particularly with transition. So you are like the whole me believing that you are something special. That is 
necessary to a point. Like Power Rage are really bad for it. Power Rage teach you. I'm sure Royal do as well, Luke, that you're absolutely mega and that it's part of the ethos so you're untouchable. And then, you know, uh, the SS goes a level above that. And it's it's necessary to a point. <laughs> What are you laughing at? <laughs> it's necessary to a point. Yeah. But you have to know that it's programming. You have to know that you're being told that. And actually, it's, you don't just get presented this, this magic berry or whatever, and that's you squared now. You have to keep working at it. And it's your responsibility to do that. And like, you know, the examples that you've used, and Ben talking about Red Wings, um, there's, a, there's a natural human... With like the you know mistakes and failures, there's a natural human need to try and not necessarily paste over those things, but try and or glorify them. But uh, it's particularly when guys have died. There's a natural human need to try and make the best of those situations. But you also have to recognise that there's mistakes there, and we're not perfect, and we're not you know we're not ninjas. We have to work, and if we don't keep these basic skills up, you're going to be in the shit at some point. You're going to let the blokes down. Um, and I think when we, if we start, talk, if we talk about like transition, it's one of the things that guys from the military have a problem with when they leave is that they still think they're this ninja and they don't realize that actually, you know, you, it's, it's, it's a world that you've been moving in, but you have to play the game outside. And if you go into it with this attitude of I'm fucking mega, you lot of shit. Do you know what I've done? I've done fucking this stuff. It's like, no one cares, mate. We've all done some stuff. Nobody gives a shit when you've actually done that. And they shouldn't. Who the fuck are you? Know, you know what I mean? So, yeah, I think... Ha- go on, Luke. Like, uh, we spoke about it before, I think, especially with the powers and the Marines, you are put on a pedestal throughout the whole mm. training. You're told you're the best, everyone else is shit. Um, I know we definitely were with the Army. Um, but the one with being sort of like invincible, untouchable, do you feel, especially post-tour, especially if blokes have had a sketchy tour, and they've danced around IED fields and got through scraps. Um, coming back into sort of civilian life for that three, four week down period where they're going out on like on the pits, just doing loads of different stuff, that you do sort of have that sort of untouchable era. If I can survive a six-month tour, mm-hmm. I'm going to survive a scrap downtown. I'm going to survive driving 100 miles an hour on the wrong side of the road. Mm-hmm. No, it's true. Yeah, I agree with that. Uh, yeah, I, listen, I mean, for, in terms of the soldiering point of view, the only way I could say it is a house that isn't built on foundations ain't going to stand up. Mm. And you need that. You need them basics. That's just the bread and butter of a guy. Anybody that can disappear into the jungle or disappear into, say, a, a rural area and soldier and keep himself clean and operating and, and, and do all of that can be trained to do the specialist stuff. You know, um, whether it be in plain clothes or the black kit and, but you need that other stuff, you know, that's what makes you a great soldier. Mm-hmm. But yeah, like, as to use that analogy, yeah, the foundations might be great, but you, just, you know, every now and then you need to do the pointing. You need to you know, make sure that, you know, the skills that you, you have are up to, up to the level that they should be. You know, you can't have that skill thing. You have to keep, you know, an element. Luke's Luke's point there was about um, you know Luke's point there about sort of decompression and sort of coming coming off the back of you know like you said a tasty tour or something. We I mean it's certainly for 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 you, mate. Uh, where you know we didn't have the social media like we had before, Colin. 
you you were involved in something that was massively effective to you as a person because you spent a long time that on your own there's the life and death situation i know you and i've spoken about this uh previously um um it was never really addressed by the regiment properly i mean I, you know without stealing your thunder here you were pretty much told to sweep it under the carpet or your bind um and then obviously for us we had to think with decompression didn't we Luke? yeah and gas we had decompression which was kind of bullshit i mean Actually, the regiment's decompression, which I, I can't talk about here on, on, on this, is actually really good. It's about a team building and, and everything else. It's, they, they've absolutely nailed it. We were forced to go through the Green Army thing, which was kind of like a forced on the pissed night that you only got like one can of beer and it, it was kind, yeah. of, kind of bollocks. But yeah, I, I think after you tour, you've got money, you've got a suntan, you've got, you've got the money to go and buy the car. If you're single, you're out on the piss, you're going on holiday, you're feeling like 10 men. It's pretty wicked, but but what is it, Colin? What was that for you, really, in those days? The decompression off off what was really the biggest kind of operation for a long time, left and right. Oh no, my decompression was um, I got well. I got back in, and I mean, I'd lost you know 38, 38 pounds in in weight, um, and, and my body was in shit state. And when I eventually got back into camp at uh, our forward operating base, where the uh, the boss was. The CEO said, uh, Jordy, we're going to send you down uh, to Abu Dhabi because there's a training team there. We're going to re-kit you and then get you back in the desert. And I was going, I was, I can remember standing, nodding, and I'm going, yes, boss, yes, yes, thinking, fuck you, not a chance. You know, I'm fucked. I couldn't even walk 100 meters. Anyway, I went from in, I think it was two days, sorry, three days, I went from being in Iraq, in Syria, um, into a nightclub in Abu Dhabi where this training team from B Squadron was training at the Sultan's army. And honestly, I couldn't take it in. And it was like, what the fuck is going on here? And it just, and I mean, it was just weird. So, yeah, and I had some cheap Arab suit on as well. And I'm like, fuck me. Um, this is this is wild. So I spent a couple of weeks weeks with this training team and at one point, because all my gums had receded, I was getting terrible um, toothache, and I was I was taking uh, D D one is it Ed, uh, what DF one one eight or something like that the painkillers. Well, I kept overdosing on them, so I I went uh, back up to the base in, in Salala, I think it is, and I said, listen, I need to get to a dentist. I'm losing my fucking mind. And they kept saying, no, it's, we, we, nobody knows it's a top secret um, camp and you can't go anywhere. I said, I can't, I can't carry on with this. It's, it's fucking killing me. So they arranged through the British embassy that I go to this dentist and he was a New Zealand guy. And they said, right, you're part of a Land Rover team that's testing a Land Rover in the desert. You just stick to that. And I'm like, yeah, that's fine. Just get me down there. So anyway, I walked in, had to fill a form in, you know, like, do you have HIV? No, like this, that, the other, how's your health? Fine. Just run through everything. And um, sat in the chair and there was a young girl um, next to me. And then the dentist came in, he opened my mouth, he told the young girl to go out. And he said, right. He said, you've got some serious damage in your mouth and it's not just your teeth. He said, I'm guessing you're part of that SES team up in Salala. <laughs> and I said, I said, do you know about that? And he went, every fucker in Abu Dhabi knows the SES is in town. <laughs> so it was things like that. So, I mean, basically, um, 
we I sat I think for about a month. Was that just just at top? Was that was that was that your chat lines in the nightclub? Just making sure the girls knew. <laughs> no, I'd, I mean, I'd seen the hand of God at that point, mate. I was like, "Fuck that! No more badness coming out of me. I've just been saved." <laughs> so, yeah. um, oh, I'm in the sass, don't have you? I was worse uh, when they go, "No, you're not, mate." <laughs> yes, exactly. <laughs> um, no, I am. Um, I spent two months there where they wouldn't let me get back. And then all of us, and this is where I, sp- I spoke to my brother. Uh, Gaz, you might know him. Yeah, yeah. Right. Um, I spoke to him about how they, they decompressed um, in like Power Edge. And um, he told me, and I was like, well, my decompression was I was, on the f- I was on the first plane when the regiment was coming out. I got into camp. My missus was waiting at, um, in, the court, in the quadrangle. And um, as I came out, the squadron clerk came and he said, you've got to go down to the hospital in London. I can't even remember what it was called. It was on Blackheath um, Common. And I went, am I going home? He went, no, the bus is waiting. So the missus come over and I said, I've got to go down to, um, I can't remember the name of the hospital. It wasn't the BMH, was it? The BMH actually in Woolwich. I think it started with a W or something like that. But it's closed down now anyway. And it said... um, all of a sudden, they were, they were concerned about my intake of all of that effluent. I'd been sat in, you know, in, in camp for two months. So my decompression was having an argument with my missus, and she said, tell that fucker you're coming home. And I went, I had a bro- I'm there with this company clerk, and he said, your car's waiting. I went, listen, mate, I've got to spend, I want to see my daughter. I want to just spend the night at, at, the, um, at the house, and then... Mrs. It's like because she was an ex um, theatre sister. She's like, and I'm coming as well. Um, so we spent two nights down in London, where we walked into the hospital, and all of these guys are in these hazmat suits and stuff like that. <laughs> and they'd done a deep clean of the hospital. And as I walked in, they're like, "Get out of there! Get out!" So as I'm walking out, they they looked and they said, "Just wait a minute. Um, is your name Armstrong?" And I went, "Yeah." They went, "Oh, okay. Uh, come in." So the, basically the surgeon had checked, checked out for the day and uh, they put me in a, in a hotel, went around the next day. They stuck probes at every orifice going and uh, then they came, took blood and then I had to go, go back about, I think it was four or five hours later. And uh, I'm sat there, the surgeon went, yeah, we didn't find anything. Um, everything's fine. And the last question he said was, um, do you have any family? And I went, yeah, I've got a daughter. He said, are you planning on having any more? And I went, oh yeah. He went, don't. Well, I went like an idiot because my head's still fucked. I went, oh, okay, that's fine. Well, you can imagine my, my with my wife's the, like medical background, she went, oh, just a minute. What have you fucking found? And he, he put himself on the back. She went, I used to be a major in the army. So what do you found? And she just ripped into this guy and he went, well, we're not sure. <laughs> <laughs> I thought you bastards. <laughs> so that was my decompression. I got home, and then we ne- we every other like op we'd done before that we had a, a, a vicious debrief mm. of what went right and what went wrong, and it was just brushed under the table. There was no gun. There's going to be no debrief. There was going to be nothing. And at the squadron um, cross brief, they said that they wanted me to talk. And I went, okay, um, I can get it. I can do the whole debrief in 40 minutes and get most of it out. They went, no, you've got five minutes. And, he, and the ops officer, who was a ginger-headed guy, 
he said, and by the way, he said, I would appreciate it if you don't mention the Claymores. Fuck's <laughs> sake. And I was like, fucking hell. And I stood up for five, <laughs> five minutes. And <laughs> it was just, and but that, that actually left the, the patrol. We never cleared the air. And there was a lot of things like simmering. And there was a lot of bad feeling. And we never really recovered from that. Um, I what would I do next? Um, I, I was I was posted to somewhere. Then I and I think it was about I was due to do Northern Ireland the the troop training, and then I think I was sent on an exercise, and then then I was posted to training wing that that following winter, and um, I guess that was rewarding to a certain degree. Um, I liked seeing the young lads coming through and and being with them. And actually, it was it was a quite an emotional like um, two years because some of them lads were killed like Fergus Rennie. And I guess I I, I if out of everybody, I mean, I, I must say Bob. There's, there was eighteen guys killed in my, in my ten years, but. The, the two main guys that stand out is like, obviously I've mentioned Bob Consiglio. He was, he was a great guy and uh, a lad called Fergus Rennie. And he was from one para. Now he was one, he was one of my first students. Now we had this officer that I had to catch out and I had to have proof because we wanted to sack him. He, he was useless, but it was nearly like if a, if a Tom had sneezed, I could sack him. But because he was an officer, I had to have, you know, the evidence there. So when I would, as an instructor, you hand out all the patrol kit, who gets what radio, who gets the emu, who gets this, who gets that. So I give the officer the emu just for the opportunity of him losing it. And um, anyway, we went through, we were going through selection. Fergus was proving that he was the leader of the pack. Um, he was motivated. His, his personal skills were, were absolutely brilliant. And there was that period where you go out and you do your three-day tab exercise where you, you stay out and, and bash her up. Um, well, on the first night, as we're going out, uh, we did the, you know, uh, stand to last light darkness. And I said to the guys, right, I want you up actually at four o'clock in the morning and we're going to move off in darkness. So we, that's what we did. We moved off and um, we're moving up the track. And just as daylight comes up, then said, stop there get yourself a brew on fellas. It's non-tactic, tactic, uh, tactically. And um, I went back to the basher site. So I found the bungee, the sock, the fucking biscuit wrapper, the this, and then I found the emu. And I was like, thank you, God, I've got the bastard. <laughs> so I woke up with everything in my pockets and I went, right, you fuckers, whose is this? One, one lad puts his arm up, gives him the bungee. Whose is fucking this? Gives him this. Whose is this? Hands this out. And I'm looking at the officer and I went, whose is this? Like, <laughs> and out of my peripheral fucking vision, Fergie puts his hand up. Oh, and I'm like, fuck me pink. And so I ripped into him and I, I was more, I wasn't really in, well, I was annoyed, but I was more annoyed that him and the officer had swapped over the kit mm -hmm. and he just let, he, you know, I, I thought I had this, um, this officer. Yeah. So I fucking beasted them all day. 
And then we got to the point where we were getting ready to bash her up and I've got them in a line. And I looked down at Fergie's feet and his fucking boots are like that. He'd put his left boot on his right foot and vice versa. And he'd walked all day in these fucking boots. And I just had a complete meltdown with a fucker. And I was like, you fucking, I was everything. And um, I, if I'd had, if I'd had my courage of convictions and sacked him, that lad would still be alive. But he, he, was a, he was a brilliant soldier and he was a good addition to A Squadron. But sadly, he was killed in Bosnia. He was one of the, um, the uh, first soldiers, to be, uh, SES soldiers to be killed there. And uh, I can remember sitting in the house that, when the news bulletin came on and somebody from the guardroom phoned me and said, Fergie's just being killed. And I was, I, I, well, I, I still am guilt-ridden. And... Um, and friggin' gutted that I didn't sack him um, on that spot because I know he would have come back to you know to the regiment and passed. But yeah, it um, it this friggin' thing, killed me. Thing is, I don't know. It's it's completely understandable, but it it was completely his choice to to join. He got what he wanted, and it, you can't. I, I I don't know. I don't want to go down that rabbit hole, but. Mm. It's just not a good idea to think that. Now it's difficult not to, but it's he got exactly what he wanted. He wanted to be in the SES and he passed. Mm. You know, and like you say, he well, would have come back and he would have passed again. If, oh, yeah. if I, I mean? if I, you know, if I think of it practically, yeah, that's it. You know, he would have, I would have probably destroyed him if I'd said you failed type yeah. of thing. But that was one of the, that was one of the points that used to eat away at me to mm. motivate me to leave the regiment. Um, okay. And it was that was it wasn't the main point. Um, I mean, I broke I broke my ankle on a free fall jump, and I, I was told that I was going to ride a desk for a year. And I was thinking, fuck that! I, I didn't join the regiment to sit behind a desk. And when I started weighing things up, and also, unbeknown to me, um, I think I was suffering. I'm not sure about this PTSD thing. I was probably suffering from a, a fright, you know, from that week on the A and E thing. Mm-hmm. And that and another thing, this is uh quite bizarre. The sit I can remember, I can't even we I think we were doing mortar training, and I got called up to the uh, CEO's office. And he said, Jordy, in uh, five minutes, you're gonna go through them doors, and there's two, there's a psychologist and a psychiatrist in there, and they they want to get a foothold in the camp. And he said, obviously. We do not want our guys spilling their guts out to them type of people for obvious reasons. So I went, right, okay. And he said, um, just tell them everything's all right. He didn't ask us if I was all right or, you know, there was anything wrong. It was just tell them, you know, you're fine. So I remember walking in there, they had this chart, sat down, and they had this jug of water and said, right, a normal person's half full, a person stressed is nearly full and another one is it's overflowing and I'm like what the fuck are you going on about here you know and then they said um they started asking me questions saying do you have bad do you have bad dreams at the minute and I was like no that was the first lie is everything all right with your family I said oh yeah that was the second lie mm-hmm. I think uh, you know I, it was over uh, with the family um has your personality changed well everybody was telling me that it had but to me it hadn't so that was the second lie. And they said, right, uh, do you want to say anything? I went, yeah. Can I leave to go on a run? Because it's lunchtime. Mm-hmm. And they went, yeah, go on, leave. And then the next thing that happened 
was my sergeant major went to a good friend of mine, Kev, and he said, uh, listen, we want, to keep an eye, want you to keep an eye on Geordie because we think he's losing the plot. So naturally, Kev came straight to me. He said, listen, mate, they're fucking watching you, mm. which made me even more paranoid. And then it, it, it changed the, the way I was looking. In fact, I went out to Zaire uh, to, to empty the embassy. And uh, all I can say about, men- and I'm not an expert with mental illness, all I can say is you see life is actually, is, it is the same when you, when, if you're suffering from mental illness, you see life through the same eyes, you don't realize it's actually your friends, family, and colleagues who, who see a change. And mm. I kept getting guys coming up and saying, Geordie, what's wrong? And I'm like, fuck you, nothing's wrong. I'm, I'm, I'm having a great day. And they kept say, saying it, it was irritating me. Um, and then, um, <laughs> The, the regiment came to the conclusion the safest place to send me was training wing. <laughs> you think if you'd actually had a debrief um, properly, did you, oh, well, uh, the first question is, did you and your patrol ever get back together afterwards to talk about the event, you know, in the lines? And if, if you'd actually had a sensible debrief instead of it being shoved under the carpet because of poor SOPs and everything else, um, Sorry, uh, poor practice by the the squadron and the regiment at the time. Do you think you could have? Uh, do you think you could have understood it better and yeah, then processed no, t- totally. it? Totally. I was I was more confused that there was no debrief, so we couldn't adjust SOPs. That we couldn't change the mistakes. You know, we'd we'd made so many mistakes from from the high levels to on ground level, and we should have sat in that room locked door. With the OC, OC, with it, CO, OC, RSM, everybody, and and spoke about it. Three men lost their lives, you know, for nothing. And then the rest of the patrol ended up in in the uh, pokey, uh, you know, from that point. And it wasn't. And it was. Yeah, I was really confused and angry about it. Um, yeah, that's so the regiment ha- didn't have your back, or at least the people that the you know. I'm not trying to put blame here because look, we're both in the same place. I love the regiment with all my heart. It's been really good to me. There are mistakes, and it's not the regiment; it's the individuals in those positions at the time that fuck it up. That's that's got to be the most important thing to understand here. That it's very easy to point fingers at the regiment when it's not actually. It's the people who are in it's, those positions. No, it's the individuals. You're absolutely right. I yeah, hey I. I love the regiment as well, so don't get me like wrong here. It's not the regiment; it's the individuals who made mistakes, and that—that's who should have been in the room and cleared the air. And then, I was probably more concerned that you're going to get another guy, you know, by himself, and they didn't have the means of picking him up, and he's got to trip through the fucking desert for seven days. Mm-hmm. It, it, it made no sense that we do it. In fact, put it this way: in your twenty years, when you came back from an op, when did the regiment say? Here's a couple of thousand pound. We want you to go on a holiday. And they gave every member of the, the, the patrol money to fuck off for two weeks holiday paid. And I, uh, you know, I was getting ready for an Everest expedition. I'm like, stick your holiday up your ass. I'm, I'm, going, to, I'm going to Everest. And it was me missus, because she'd been a major, knew my OC. She got in contact and said, he's not mentally fit to go to uh, Everest behind my back. And when he came in to say, "Yeah, send him on not, another long walk on his own." Yes, yeah, yeah. when he said, "When he said he <laughs> can't go to Everest," I was snapping. So I ended up going to Tenerife, and I had a lip on me, and I don't think I spoke to my wife for more than three words. 
Yeah. But Man. like they were crushing everything under the carpet. And it, some, 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 some person said, just give them a load of money, send them away for a holiday, a fortnight, they'll come back, they'll be fine. Yeah. Um, hey, Gaz, can I, um, can I ask a, a question? Is that right? Come on, I'll throw one in. Uh, so, so one of the things we wanted to talk about today was, um, uh, you know, uh, Luke led to earlier the transition piece and where you went from there. Um, and, you know, for example, the book that you did, is that your debrief? Is that your chance to, to get your story out there and <clears throat> uh, process what you've done? And then how did your transition from that into civilian street and make a new career kind of go? You know? Well, I because, mean, sorry, because your, your career isn't just about that operation and your SES, you know, what you've done now in your books and your uh, escapism stuff that you do with, you know, uh, you know, fantasy books for kids and all these other bits and pieces, mm-hmm. you know, you've made a leap. Well, as it's been mentioned, you know, the day you leave the army, you're now a civilian. And I think I was lucky because I'd been a civilian before I joined joined the military. Mm-hmm. And I feel sorry for a lot, a lot of lads that have been institutionalized to, in terms of being in the military right through their career. And they're not as educated to say as you, Ben, but they've got like a, a, a low educational standard and they leave the army. They've, they've, Every, they've had everything done apart from having their arse wiped. Everything's put in place. They leave that day, and it's like being in free fall. Well, I was lucky. When I left, I went straight onto a BG team, and that BG team ran for about four or five years, and it was all ex-regiment guys. We were being paid at the time a lot of money, so money wasn't a factor. Didn't have to worry about bills, you know, anything else, house, mortgage, or whatever. But the the main thing was being around ex-colleagues, the, the crack was exactly the same as you're serving. It was nearly like being in a troop, but you're, you're in civilian clothes. Mm-hmm. So my re-entry into civilian life was tapered right down. And during that period, I was stitched up by a guy called Paul Greengrass, who was now one of the world's top directors, um, and a guy called Jeff Pope, who was a fucking producer from L- London uh, Television, and they said they wanted to make a, a, dra- a dramatization of my escape. And I, I was sucked in. I was I'd never been around the media or anything, and I was just like, "Yeah, that's fine." I was just concentrating on doing the BG work, and I thought this will be, you know, this will be fine. Well, I got stitched up like a kipper with that mo- that movie, and um, they made it very controversial. I went down to South Africa when they were like shooting it, and it was freaking awful. And I was ashamed that my name was on it. I didn't have any consultation rights. Now I'm a lot smarter in terms of signing a contract, but I got I got stitched up because I had probably my educational levels and I I just went along with them and I trusted them mm-hmm. and it was probably that thing in the army you tend to trust your colleagues that they're not going to like stitch you up type of thing mm-hmm. so that was that's that what happened there and then when I realized that it was I was fucked um I went to a um a, a literary agent who is a family friend and I said can I get a book out quickly to address this because I know everything's going to kick off. 
And sure enough, I'll tell you the extent that I got stitched up by these people. When I was on set, I would be arguing that this didn't happen. The patrol were working professionally. It, um, everything, um, it, you know, everything is good. Well, it was fine. And just these lovies were trying to portray something else. So Paul Greengrass said to me, don't worry. When we get back to London, you'll get in the editing suite. And he said, everything will look different. He said, we'll spend a good week editing. Everything will be fine. Well, we got back several months past, and then I got a, um, a telephone call from a Sun journalist. And he said, what do you think of uh, your movie? I went, oh, it hasn't been edited yet. It hasn't, you know, it isn't been sorted. He said, I went to the premiere yesterday. Fuck's sake. So I got stitched wow. up like a kid. And that was the first bad, you know, bad stitch up. So I phoned a friend. In fact, you've met him, the old Sergeant Major of A Squadron. Um, and I, pho I phoned him up. And I said, fuck's sake, you know, John, um, I've been stitched up. He went, Colin, I fucking told you, don't get involved with the media when you leave the regiment. And it was, that was that. So that book came out, the, the one that got away came out, and it wasn't anything like cathartic or anything like that. So I, I'm, you're, but there was a year went past with that one that got away, and it was deemed a publishing success because of the sales. Mm -hmm. I mean, it was a, a number one for in over 18 weeks, which is unheard of now. And um, so my editor, and this is a key one, and you probably like the story, but um, my editor, I went down to London, he said, right, we want you to do another book about the regiment. And I went, I ain't interested. I'm just not interested at all. And uh, I said, I don't want to do an expose on anything else and talk about that. I said, it's over. I've done my bit, and that's what I wanted to do. Um, having said that, I, I still had a job as a bodyguard. And he said, well, what about fiction? I said, I can't write fiction. and I'm not really interested in doing fiction. You know, I'm in security and I'm happy. So cheers. So got on the train. A cross brief had just started. And I'll not mention these two officers' names, but you'll know them. Um, both of them were XB squadron OCs, my like OCs. They, well... Again, John phoned me up and uh, he told me the story and he said, the CEO and the OC, no, the CEO and ops officer opened the cross brief and he said, I want to see Colin Armstrong, Steve Mitchell, like McNabb. I want to see them and their families on the street. And I'm like, he opened the cross brief by saying that. I said, the fucking cross brief's got nothing to do about a guy that's done a book. Mm. You, you know what it did? Because he threatened my fucking family. I phoned Mark Booth up in his house and I said, Mark, I'll do as many books as you want. Now, if fucking that twat hadn't said that, I would have never done another book. That's a and it's just a, a fate of life, you know, and an idiot saying something stupid. When he... If I came around to you and, and, and said, listen, you fucking ugly cunt, I'm going to th like threaten you, you'd like say, fuck off. But if I came around and threatened your family, that's a different thing. And I was like, fuck you. You're not, you're not threatening my family. So the books went from strength to strength, and it got to the point where I didn't need to do the security. And another key thing is, I think it was four or five years into the security, I'd become a civilian. Now, that is the golden story. I've heard some horror stories of, of guys coming out that don't have a family, 
they, they, they don't have a network, they end up homeless or on the streets and in shit state. And it's it's wrong. I know my brother did a two-year posting where he was um working with guys who were injured and, and integrating guys into society. And my brother, he's pretty switched on. I mean, he's a he's a soldier, soldier as far as I'm concerned. He's very caring and he, you know, he cares about his guys. But that was my transition. So that's the golden story. But there's a lot of shit stories. The, the irony there, Colin, is you tell me any of them Ruperts that don't put SAS on their fucking CVs <laughs> when they're trying to get a job somewhere in fucking London, Abu Dhabi or wherever. They are absolute hypocritical bastards. Because oh, hey. they go round, they go round the King's Road and all these other shitholes that they fucking go to, flaunting the fact that they are in the SAS. Yeah. Well, and I, I saw straight away they're the first ones who are who are keen. So anyone who isn't part of the DE class that, you know, you don't have the right. Mm-hmm. Well, I fucking worked my tits off to get there and I will use it. I will never betray my 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 blokes and I'll never give away uh, uh, secrets or talk about operations. However, you know, the hypocrisy of saying that that they are they want to destroy you or they want to destroy your family and and uh, and then to stop people doing this now there are people we know for well and you and i know uh them in fact we all know them because we talk about them all the time who've done fuck all and uh, have embellished stories and put the regiment and special forces into bad light um they've made up lies they've taken other people's glory and they were actually shit cunts when they were in when they were in um However, uh, there is a process uh, by DSF to screen and to ensure that these idiots uh, and also people don't give away trade secrets. I get that. But the hypocrisy, if someone's doing something fairly decent, to say you'd be destroyed by a bunch of Ruperts that I know are going to be the first line on their CV will be former OC, SAS or whatever. You know, oh, no, to- you're right, to ben. I mean, one of them, one of the Ruperts... Um, he was in, and there's a, there's a, it's in, in, um, there's an article on the internet. You can find it, find it. It was when Libya had, um, when it was after Gaddafi had gone, he, he was, he was brought in and he was uh, in the, in a lounge, um, bringing in all the gas companies, oil companies with a cigar. And he was doling out the contracts and it, it was a telegraph, a guardian, uh, journalist went up and said, who are you? And it just all came out, you know, and I'm like, Fuck off, like you know. But as I've said to you before, this is an illusion that the Ruperts put out there in in a, to control you when you've left the military and to make you feel bad. But going back to the books, um, I got to a point where I was doing a lot of talks, and I think this reflects back to the days I was in the depot, and some young kids came up and said, "Why don't you do books for us?" And at the at the time, I was like, um, sat and thought about for a couple of days. Went to the publishers and said, "Right, there's there's a market here um, to do action books for kids." And the plus side is, you're going to motivate children to read, and them children are going to become adults, and they're going to read the adult books. So put something back in, and that's why I push it for kids. And that's just like going back with them recruits. You can't just ride high and say, fuck you to everybody. Uh, it's, it's crazy. Um, but the old, the other thing with, with, as you mentioned earlier, that 
I don't like doing is the social media. I never did Twitter or Facebook. I had some Spotty Herbert in the publishers doing a Facebook and they could just put whatever they want out. I'm actually quite a private person. And when they said do Instagram, I was like, and then they said, listen, now in these days you need a platform. And I went, what's a platform? And it was like, you need a social media platform. And I went, well, what's Instagram? Well, they just said, put, you put a picture out about yourself. But the amount of fucking nutcases that follow me and send bizarre messages is, <laughs> it's fucking, it blows my mind. One guy, right? One guy, he, he, he followed me. And then he sent like a DM. Not talking about me again, I. No, no, no. <laughs> this guy, he sent a, a direct message and he said, I know where you live. Uh, and he, he put the address on. I'm thinking, what the fuck? And I said, where did you get that address? And he went, I went on to Herefordshire um, um, Council's uh, planning permission. And I went through all the planning requests in Hereford until I found your name. That was 14 years ago when I put the planning permission in. So how many requests he'd, how many days he'd spent on a computer to do it. And I'm thinking, really? I couldn't be asked. Like, you know, I just couldn't be asked. And then you've got, again, you've got to be so careful where you take that picture for the backdrop because you know you'll, somebody will say, I know where your house is. Yeah. And you think, fuck. And, and on that note, probably one of the most frightening times in my life was my daughter got um, targeted. And um, I was, I'd finished a book to her and you always get your nutcase who says he's going to kill you and all the rest of it. I was back at, in Florida and I got an email through from my publishers saying, uh, DCI Singh from the anti-terror group wants to know you. So I phoned this number and I said, listen, mate, this is an email address. I've got to get you checked out. My friend in, in, in Hereford's a police sergeant. I'll get him to ring you. And he went, do it quickly. And uh, so I did, got checked out, spoke to him, and he said, you need to speak to this other DCI at Scotland Yard, anti-terrorist branch. And I'm expecting, as I'm ringing this guy, I'm expecting him to say, oh, there was a death threat against you and all the rest of it. Fucking hell, I can remember exactly where I was standing and where my arse ended up. Um, and his, as soon as I got through to me, he went, uh, where's your daughter? We need, we need to know where your daughter is. There's um, a definite threat against her, and it's a, it's a like Islamic state inspired attack. You know what they're going to do to her, and um, she's it's it's running, and we need to get her location. So I'm phoning my daughter on the mobile as I'm talking to her. Typical of her, it comes up, Dad. She's like, "Fuck that! I'm not speaking to him." I kept leaving messages. Eventually got through to her and uh, told her, and then basically um, she ended up with two policemen on her doorstep. And I'd said to her, get out here or come out to America where you'll be safe. And she went, screw that. She said, I've just gotten an extension on my house. I ain't fucking leaving. And I was like, Sarah, for fuck's sake. Because she is the most, just like, you know, dithering old thing that's going. And I was like, Sarah, you don't understand. She went, I'm fine. I've got my shotgun. I'm like, fuck's sake. <laughs> and this thing went on for two weeks. Sorry, two years. It went on for two years. Fuck's sake. Yeah, I'll tell you what. Two years of fucking shitting myself all the time, mm. just constantly. But anyway, so yes, social media. Um, 
I suppose for you guys, you understand it, you know how to spin it and all the rest. I'm an old fart. You know, it takes me five minutes to start my phone up, but um, it's it's just another it's a, just another world to me. Just uh, I mean, just one on the social media side. Um, if if you'd have had all that sort of social media at the time when the, sort of the story came out, the film came out, when the first initial book came out, do you think that would have had massive effect or would have changed the way? You know, I don't. Portrayed? I'm not sure because. Um, I think we. Uh, it was in a time I was lucky. I was in that time where there'd hardly been any books come out, so I couldn't have asked for more success within that book. Mm. I can understand them guys that do that TV show, but on that, one of them's just brought out his first fictional novel and it's died. The publishers were on to me saying, "Will I put a quote on?" And I was like, "No, will I? Fuck, mm. you know, uh, I'm not." Um, so it's. I think it's a balance. I was lucky. Uh, back then, where it was it, publishing was at its height. I mean, you you would sell you know hundreds of thousands of books, and then whatever say you sold two hundred thousand books, you would sell um, four hundred thousand paperbacks, and that that's how the that's what the equation would be. Mm-hmm. But now, with with social media, uh, Netflix, you can download on a computer. Mm-hmm. You know, it, it just took a dive. And you're lucky. Some people, some people are lucky if they'll sell ten thousand books. You know, um, I'm still, I'm still up there. But the whole dynamics have changed, and I don't believe it would have helped much because in them days, I had access to nearly every radio station, national, local, um, TV p- programs to talk. There's no better medium than the television. Um, and at one point, I think it was 10 years where I was doing some bone TV stuff. But if you're on television and you're doing a program, you've got access to, and that's the only reason to do it, or for me it was, so I could go on to TV and advertise this TV show and then also talk about my latest book. Yeah. So now, yeah. All, saying all of that, I was never comfortable at any point, but I'd crossed the demarcation line where I had to, I had to throw myself into this new career. Mm-hmm. I'll tell you, there was a shitload of guys followed me into doing books, but they tried to keep their foot in the regimental association and then one in publishing, and it doesn't work that way. You've got to talk a load of shit. You've got to, you've got to say address the cities. I'm not trying to sell you for, you three a book or anybody at Hereford a book because they know what the fucking score is. I'm trying to sell 300,000 books to cities. And they're the ones that's got an imagination that we're supermen. We can fucking fly at night and, you know, do whatever. Mm-hmm. So the perception of that, you've got to look at, at the wider side of it. Um, as I said, the guys who stood on the fence wanted to bring a book out. And now all of these guys are writing to the SAS Association saying, can I be forgiven? <laughs> You're just like, fuck off. You can't, it's like free fall. You can't jump out of an aircraft and expect to get back into the fucker. And that's what it's like. You leave that aircraft and you take the fucking what's coming. And, yeah. and you've just got to be committed. Yeah. Like the, the social media thing, like we talk about moving with the times. So this is, I mean, we spoke about previously on this podcast, like it's, it's my opinion that the way you, 
none of, none of us ever talk about anything that we've done. So everyone knows our backgrounds, but no, we never talk about anything operational. We never talk about anything like that. And that's fine. We, but people, are, we use it as, it's like, it's like currency to give you a certain level of credibility. That's all we use it for. Yeah, I mean, obviously you see this bullshit behind me. But like, you know, that's what it's there for. But we try and, we're trying to do, to talk about things we've done since then. And one of the things that I, I think the Americans do better, so talking about recruiting, talking about the, um, the effect that your books and all the things that you've done since leaving have had on recruiting, because they will have, you know, recruiting and stuff like that. Um, the USSF, they have, you know, like well, the Rangers anyway. The Rangers are very good at it. The Rangers have Instagram profiles, but they put videos up. They, they've embraced that as a recruiting tool. Now, I, the only people that really do it very well in this country are SF, the Royal Marines. We, me and Luke spoke about this last week. I think I don't see an issue with UKSF as a whole having a better social media presence because you can you can you can say an awful lot without saying anything that's going to fuck people over it's perfectly possible to do that mm -hmm. you know what i mean um i mean what what what's your, what's your thoughts on that well no i totally agree i mean i looked at that last uh, advertisement campaign for the army where mm -hmm. it's like you can cry you can have feelings i'm like Fuck off. How much did that cost? And then when you look at how the Marines advertise, you've got yeah. guys cammed up, dressed up, going through tactically, you mm -hmm. know, getting through the water. They've always done that well. And how yeah. the army can't replicate that, it's, you know, it's crazy. Some of the, the shit that comes out of the army is absolute nonsense. And yes, I think they could probably do a much better and very safe advertisement. I, in fact, when I was a young kid in the TA, they used to have, um, there was a, an advertisement um, and it was an SES guy. And it, the, I, I haven't seen this footage since. And the, the camera's on, on, on a face and you can't see it. It's in the back of the hook. The tailgate starts to come down and, the, and then this face is, appears on the light and he's got the mask on, goggles on, helmet on, kit and all the rest of it. I was like a young kid wanting to fucking jerk off at this shit. I'm yeah. like, fuck me. And then he, he, the camera just comes around him like this. And this guy just dives off the tailgate. And I'm like, yeah. you know, why they can't do that, you know, and just say. Hey, you got a guy crying, opening a letter in the field. What are you doing bringing letters yeah. into the field anyway, you bloody idiot? <laughs> yeah, yeah, you know, or, or another guy, stop the radio communication. Someone needs to pray. That is not true. I've worked with yeah. loads of, yeah. of Muslims. That is not true. Stop me. <clears throat> Recently, the Remi has just done this thing where the head of the Remi is looking to change the name of the rank craftsman because yeah. uh, it needs to be more in tune because it's got the word man in. You know, I did a couple of years in the Remi. I don't remember anyone ever having a complaint about being called a craftsman. It, I mean, it, it's, the world's uh, going nuts. And, but we're making this rods is, for our own back. I've, I've said this. If it wasn't for the rod that the army's making for its own back, it would fall over because it doesn't have a spine. That 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 is it. You know what? It, the, the sad thing is, um, there's two points. It's either run by a civil servant or an officer who thinks he knows what a young 
like non-ranker yeah. is, and they can't get into their minds, but they're trying to yeah. recruit, recruit guys from council houses, mm-hmm. low backgrounds. And these kids don't give a shit about, you know, being what, like, you know, wanting to, or being told that they're wokey. I can remember talking to my brother when they'd done an Afghan tour. And I said, Alan, um, are the kids now, do they perform, you know, and, you know, he said, listen, they've been brought up in a different background, but I've seen them guys with their fucking sleeves ripped off with showing their power reg um, tattoos, putting fucking rounds down, taking rounds, seeing their colleagues getting and still getting up and fucking fighting. He said, they're no different to the work as they were in your day. There is, you know, they're fucking nails, but we're being fed the shit. That you, you can't you can't maybe make a joke about a woman now you can't call you know say something about something else i think just get something very fucking manly to inspire these kids and, and show that don't send a message that it's equal because really within the army it's the only bastion in society that still has a fucking class system mm. and that's fucking bollocks let let us see a tom marrying a female officer um, and say, oh, they're going to have a great career together. I mean, I can remember when I married my wife, they, they fucking came around and said, which one's leaving the army? You know, it's bollocks. It, it's, this, it's false flags. It's false information that I, I'll tell you what, if I'd had any sense, I should have said, I'm yeah. leaving. <laughs> no, it's, it's false messages. It's it false is, messages yeah. that they send out. Yeah. I think they say something. Sorry, Luke. So it's it says something when you're looking at the adverts and the Navy Reserve advert looks earlier than <laughs> the sort of main British Army. Yeah. You can't, I, do you know what I mean? They've got the they've got the like, boats, they've got the, the um, helicopters, the guns firing and stuff. But then, and that's the fucking Navy Reserves. And you look at yeah, the no, army one. Like you said, you've got all the. You're absolutely right. Listen, there wouldn't be anything to harm. A pit, get it, just a team of SES guys, make sure all the kit is sterilized. They've got nothing on there. Like the faces are, are blanked out and say, right, the, the, these are the main feeders for the, the um, SES. You have a battalion of paratroopers fucking yeah. marching, giving it that on the range, doing a static line jump. And then they, they, they move on to the SES and just have them doing a halo jump mm-hmm. or in their vehicles, you could sterilize it, but you would inspire all of them kids. And by the way, I'm thinking about I'm thinking about invoicing the regiment for all the guys that read my books and joined. Well, exactly. I remember getting a paper clip sent over to me, uh, a, a clipping from a paper, sorry, from my old man of showing what the pinky was. It was put in the papers just after, uh, you know, the first goal. The books came out there on every single bookshelf. The recruiting must have gone sky high. Look at Christian Craighead now with what he's done. Yeah. Why is no one actually approaching Christian Craighead, who absolutely is, is um, has shown exactly the excitement and the interest of what can, can be achieved? Um, you know, we, we, we've, um, you know, may, I think we mentioned it, I don't know, but it's the... The thing for me personally is about getting people, giving people a second chance at a career that they didn't have as they were, you know, at school. So here's your, here you go. You've got a, a trade. We've got a chance to get you a trade, chance to give you some money in your pocket, chance to get you out of uh, the shithole you're in. Uh, you know, it's distribution of wealth, etc. We should be looking at 
those adverts ages ago about what Frank's up to really were brilliant because really, I mean, I'd be honest, I had a bit of a Frank life. You know, I, I played hard, you know, worked hard, played hard. You know, I've spent, well, we all, all in this podcast here have, have had some really good jollies. Thanks for uh, as well as Yeah, as, as well as, well, you know, and also having, um, you know, the really good nitty gritty of, of work as well. So it's bullshit. I'm actually, Contact Coffee, I think, didn't you put a, a, a shout out recently and say, listen, Army, yeah. come and see us. We'll show you how to make a recruiting video. Pretty much calling them out. Yeah, <laughs> pretty much sadly calling them out. But it's not, that's not, I mean, that is my personal opinion and as a company, our, our opinion. But the amount of people that the average agree with us, it's not just us four sitting there going, fucking on them adverts are shit. Mm-hmm. It's the majority, and especially the majority that are serving. I mean, we're all proud of what we've done in our past. So we we don't want the, the sort of civilian people looking in at the military going, fucking out, looks a bit soft, looks a bit mm-hmm. fucking. It's embarrassing. We, we, want, we want people to still look at us and go, "Fucking hell, is that what it used to be?" Yeah, no, it, it, it's embarrassing, and it. it's and I think that poster campaign cost in excess of three million. The yeah. army poster campaign to tell you yeah. it's all right to cry, it you know to tell you it's all right, you know, to be a a geek on a computer or something like that. You think I could have done that? I could have made that campaign. I mean, three million. <laughs> you are blatantly having your pants pulled down. Three million quid to do a load of posters, and actually, some of the guys whose faces we used weren't even didn't even get permission yeah. to have their face used for those things. And they've been getting a load of shit for it. Yeah. I mean, like, I well, the one lad, the, for the snowflake lad, he was uh, he was still serving. Yeah. He was told, "Why well, can we text some pots for the uh, next advertising campaign?" So he's obviously like, "Yeah, who's been doing it?" And then next thing you know, he fucking opens a magazine and there's big headline saying, "Are you a snowflake?" Yeah. <laughs> right, second, second hand bit, but I heard on, like off social media. So that fact that he, he, put like his, he put his shit in and left. Like I'll tell you what, he's pr- in this <laughs> day and age, he's probably in a great position to sue the army. He probably is. Yeah. Yeah. It's probably going to cost them even more than three million. Could probably double that. <laughs> Thing is, the argument that will come back, the argument that always comes back from that is well, actually, these uh, adverts are very successful. But they're okay, that's fine. You know, maybe they did recruit. Those that those that area of society that they were aimed at, maybe they did recruit those people. And like, there's nothing. We've said it previously. There is nothing wrong with having a fucking cry. There's nothing wrong with any of these things. You know, you, you can. That's all a natural human thing. However, you didn't join the army to have a cry. You didn't join the army to you know to fuck up your patrol because uh, something that you individually want to do. You know. You join the army, whether you like it or not, to either do your trade that contributes towards somebody sticking a bayonet in somebody, or you join to stick bayonets in people. The other way, you people want to go to war, whether you like it or not. It's not fashionable. Um, so yeah, you would just do better to embrace that fact and show people what they want to see. Because like the argument that comes back from the whole uh, portraying the SF side of it. Is if there's other, but there's OPSEC problems, you know, there's kit problems. Like the fucking internet knows what kit the blokes wear because they bought it. They bought it. everyone's in fucking cry gear. You know what I mean? There's these like what they call them in the US, LARPers. They fucking dress up. Oh um, yeah. yeah, all the fucking air uh, softens. These these yeah. These, these fuck off, mate. Don't be like that. <laughs> That's the fit. 
Wait, you were being nice, Ben. We were having a nice podcast there without you being a fucking bellend. <laughs> but yeah, these these people know what SF looked like. You know what I mean? You're not giving anything away with making a fucking video or showing blokes doing some stuff on exercise. It will draw people in. Um, you've got to move with the times. Quite be realistic. Well, I think it's an educational thing in terms of Ben and I spoke about about a certain person um, sending pictures back through a media site, mm. you know, being on the ground. Yeah. It's basically, you've got to get, in fact, my brother had a problem where one lad had a head cam and he, he well, I think he was RSM and he said, mm. get them fucking things off. He said, mm. otherwise, so somebody will end up in prison. And actually they had that big fuck up where yeah. it was downloaded onto a computer and somebody put it onto the net. Mm. But it is, I think, you know, the most special forces soldiers will understand the dangers of it and it can be managed. Um, and if you get if you get somebody that that breaks those rules, then they're off. But you're absolutely right. Some of them airsofters, there's there's an airsoft group um in the UK, and you look at it. In fact, I look at pictures and I go, is that the regiment or you know exactly, exactly. I mean, I'm 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 not talking like you have to have, you've got to be you can't take the piss when you're actually in. You know, we've we've all come from this background. I've seen this is obviously it's slightly after your time, but we've grown up with the fact where everyone's got fucking mobile phones. So you're sat waiting to go and do something, and you've got your mobile phone with you. I train it generally, but um, most of the time we're told not to have social media accounts. Don't acknowledge the fact that you're in in the army at all. Let alone talk about military things. And some people do drop bollocks, and the people who do drop bollocks need to fuck off. But they the units should have a media department who understand everything, who understand the things that they don't want to be shown, who understand what the red lines are and who are there with a camera and are able to leverage this incredible career, this incredible thing that you can go and do that the average person doesn't get to do, that will be somebody you remember for the rest of your life and will give you skills for the rest of your life that you can use in whatever you choose to do in the future, not encouraging people to do that if it's you know, if if they want to, and using all the tools you've got is just a huge mistake. Yeah, I can understand the confusion. Sorry, Sorry. Uh, just fight, it seems like they're fighting against it, going, "Oh, what we're going to do about all the social media? What we're going to do about these pictures, these groups?" Yeah. But it's like, it ain't going it. away. Use it, use it to its advantage. Yeah, I can understand that there is a sense of maybe um, not jealousy, but there's like, you know, two sides, as Ben mentioned, in terms of you can use, you know, your career on a CV. The other thing is you've got like the likes of that um, Bear Grylls and it keeps going back to him. The regiment never go, hey, wait a minute. Um, he, he, he wasn't on an operation in Africa where he broke his back or anything like that. They just yeah. keep fucking quiet. There was a book actually came out and it, it was the book that knocked me off. Uh, number one, it, on, the 18th, on the 18th week. And it was called The Nemesis Files. Yeah, read it. <laughs> <laughs> it, it was a jet black book yeah. with a bl the blue wing dagger. It, was a, it looked great. It was done by, it was written by an editor of um, a publishing company who used to be a tabloid journalist. And what they found is a down and out engineer to front it. So he said he was in the SAS. And when he was being questioned, um, it, the book was about basically the SAS going over, killing 
killing like Catholics and burying them in a corner of a wood to incite problems and all the rest. The regiment never once said, this is bollocks. They let it run and it was number one for a long, a long time. But this fucking idiot who was fronting it was on a, obviously was on a wave and he went to Northern Ireland. And when he got off the aircraft, the RUC arrested him. They had him for 15 minutes, released him and said, it's fucking bollocks. It's, a, it's just all a scam. But no, at no point did the regiment come out. They said plenty about me by, you know, giving secrets out, which I fucking haven't. Mm. Um, but they will never like clamp down and say, this book is absolute toss. It's, he wasn't a member of the regiment. He wasn't this. Your man, Bear Grylls now, he gets, um, he, he's labeled as a former SES, SES soldier. And it's nearly like, well, come on. And I can see, I could understand guys serving going, fuck's sake, I want a bit of this now. Yeah. And there's other there's other people out there that claim they're being in the SAS and they haven't even been in the fucking army. Hmm. Uh, yeah. And it's it, and it must be galling for a guy who's doing the work, knowing that there's double standards here. And, and mind you, on the flip side, there's a very dark side in the SAS. There's a lot of jealousy throughout the ranks. And if even if one of your colleagues comes out and is deemed he's doing well, all of a sudden you start getting slagged off. Yeah, well, I think that's fucking everywhere, but it, that's not just, uh, yeah, that's yeah, any organisation. There is other side, sorry, I, I know we've been on a while, there is another side. So, you know, the likes of uh, Anne Milton, Anne Milton got kicked out within three years. He, he he wasn't good enough, that's why they kicked him out. He did three years, he did, I think, one operational tour, and he got kicked out. However, That's with SB. Yeah, of SBS, yeah, yeah. of SBS. Yeah. So he did his two-year probation or whatever it is. And then I think, I can't remember what it was. I think failed a drugs test or something, whatever it was that he did. Whatever it is, he wasn't good enough to serve in special forces. However, now he is making an absolute mint, doing very well for himself. And But at the same time, although for someone like us who had a credible career, did real operations, lots of operations, there, there is a bit of where we're kind of licked out about this, especially uh, proper special forces guys who are like, we're kind of pissed off about this. This guy who's done next to bugger all is now selling these stories and all these motivational things on his SF background when he obviously wasn't good enough to be in. However, the point is, if it wasn't for the likes of Aunt Middleton and other people, they wouldn't be keeping the military in the public eye. So although with people with credibility were a little bit annoyed he is doing a lot of good on the other side of it by keeping the military and the sf and those lads and the young lads in the public eye about that military background and everything else so it's kind of a double-edged sword really well i think that goes um, back to the advertising ben if they got the finger out and did proper or, or credible advertising you don't need people um because he, he keeps fucking up I mean, you know, just as an individual, if they had a media department that was actually run by an ex an ex regiment guy and and a media company, the regiment guy would be saying, "No, you can't, you can't have that kit in, you can't do this." But we can arrange to do this, this, and this. Yeah, that, and that's creating a job for somebody in the regiment within the media because that guy, no doubt, he's not going to sell any secrets, but he'll move on to be a manager. 
of that and it's creating jobs outside of the regiment. But do you think the officers are interested? Nah. No. <laughs> no. No, it's a, it's, a, it's, a, it's a real shame. I mean, again, going back to the, that TV show, um, actually, it's quite, it's quite a good bit of fun. Um, it's probably done quite good for PR for the MOD and everything else, but I completely agree with you. The Parachute Regiment Instagram feed uh, has been doing really well. I mean, yep. that's getting it's a lot better. of really good images it's of the guys. Yeah. The Royal Marines oh, ones. Um, uh, I follow the uh, the Rifles one because uh, uh, we've been helping them out and, and vice versa. Um, you know, and their ones have really come up. So there's lots of really good feeds come out. The Pathfinder one, the official mm. Pathfinder one is really good as well. Yep. Um, but they've done it in a way that I think that UKSF could also do it. Yeah. Quite agree with you guys. You don't have to give away secrets, but what you can do is show the sexy side of what you could expect if you if you if you get in. You know? Yeah. Yeah. No, it's good. It's a good point. Yeah. I mean, the actual the official British Army one is complete shite. If you read into the comments on it, it's amazing. Like the first thing I do when I see it is I as a which is natural with the background that we have, is your eyes instantly go fucking you know, what's happening with the weapon system, what's happening with the pouches, what's happening with it, all the real basic stuff. And there's always something wrong because the individual yeah. who's running that account is a Mongo and doesn't know that there's things wrong with that image. And if you go into the comments, all it is is these internet nutters yeah. going, it's back of safety catches off, there's a fucking issue, <laughs> what's in that pouch there? Wow, fuck, flagging that bloke there, isn't he? Fucking hell, don't you even know this? It's they're very entertaining, but it's not doing what it should do for recruiting. It makes us look like mongoloids. Yeah. yeah. Cool. Okay. Well, this might be the longest one we've done. One hour fifty. Um, yeah, that's pretty good, mate. Yeah, I, I really enjoyed that. Um, have you got anything else you want to want to speak about before we we sort of call it a day? I mean, how's the HR four going, Ben? Uh, yeah, it's good, mate. Yeah, good. Uh, just trying to convert the one in Hereford into a. Uh, a gym as well now so that's really good I like um, the uh, watching you try to convert yourself into someone who goes to the gym that's the best thing I know yeah <laughs> so, I've had to, so the girl who runs our uh, Colchester store called Libby um, she's yeah, she's she's cracking and uh, so she's been beasting me giving me fizz sessions to do um, so between kind of building um, the unit here in Hereford I'm um, I'm trying to get a bit fit and you know uh, I sort of said on on those posts that I've made I'm at an age where um before I used to take fitness for granted now I've got to get back on the fizz train I've got to stay healthier etc so um and then stop finding excuses um I I I mentioned on there that fizz for me like for most of us here was always out of necessity um where now I think the new necessity is life and uh, and you know trying to keep alive so uh yeah looking forward to opening the gym um and then obviously just keeping all the other bits and pieces going but, yeah, you want to shave well. that beard off you look like henry the eighth <laughs> <laughs> uh, what, what about contact coffee um yeah we've got uh, quite a few products coming out this year um you're we, wearing all of them um, yeah i'm literally well this lot yeah just i've got dressed in the dark and whatever this is i just chipped it on um yeah, we've got a few pop-ups as well early in the year, converting the Land Rover into a coffee shop uh, and then bringing on staff this year as well. So it's quite quite a big change for us as a company, but yeah, all going forward. Look, do you the, do beans as well as ground coffee? Yeah, I'll, uh, in, I'll get some sent over to you. In different strengths. <laughs> yeah, 
You'll get them all. You'll get them all for the post next week, don't worry. <laughs> <laughs> and Gaz, have you got a clothing company? Yeah, yeah. I have a clothing company, mate. So what's yeah, that be. called? It, is that Sin Eaters? Yeah, Sin Eaters Guild. Yeah. And how's so, that going? It's good, mate. It's, it's good. Like, um, so we've been going for about for a little bit less than uh, Conta Coffee, but a bit more than Ben, I think. Is that right? But yeah, so uh, about the same time, yeah. All right, mate. Okay. Um, so yeah, it's all standard clothing that you see with everybody else, but it's just a very good it's ethos good, behind it. You, that just, must I, be it. Must be a difficult um, um, industry to be in, though, because there's a lot of competition, isn't there? It is, but we're we're very lucky in that it, the the brand is completely ethos based, so it, it isn't. People are buying a t-shirt or a cap or hoodie, whatever. They're buying into a a community and a, a commitment to a certain sort of lifestyle and so first responsibility and service. You know, we have a lot of military, we have a lot of blue light and, you know, and just a lot of cities who just understand that, you know, the whole, I'm, you're not going to say it, Ben, I've given you the opportunity twice now, but the whole you are your actions thing, which is our tagline. Living your life like that. And it's quite, yeah, it's, it's quite a good idea. So yeah, you're not you're not buying clothing necessarily. To, you're like buying into uh, a culture. Right. As a last word, yeah, or a uh, cult. There you go. Just the last last word. You you three fuckers need to understand how to push yourselves. Tell <laughs> <Bell> yourselves. Fucking <laughs> 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 fair one. Hey, um, what about what? So closing off. What what's 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 going, what's in the pipeline for you, mate? Um, well, nothing. I'm just, I'm stuck, I'm stuck in, I'm stuck in France and I can't get, I can't get back to America. Uh, they've just, that Biden has just signed another dot, like, you know, another piece of legislation saying the airways are close to the Brits. No. So that house will be, will be empty for a, a, probably a year and a half. Um, so I'm just, I'm just hanging around here. Not that it's, it's a bad thing and I'm suffering from, you know, from that, but, um, it's, um, no, it's uh, just getting on. I've got a. I'm just working on a book uh, um, with the new publishers, and I had I had one come out just before Christmas. So just the same old, same old, mate. Cool. Okay. Well, anyway. I think. Well, thanks for joining us today. No, I mean, no, thanks. It's been a pleasure, and it's nice to see you all. Yeah, and also, I'll also say we've like the conversation we've had. We spoke a little bit negatively, but on about some of the things that have, have happened, but. I can tell you for a fact that as part of that generation, your initial book and you making this, this step to, to tell that story, it's partially why I'm here. And I'm sure it's partially why a lot of my peers are here. You know, that inspiration is something, you know what I mean? Oh, I mean, hey, listen, don't get me wrong. Um, when I was talking, yes, you're right. Most of it was negative. It was just the bad things, but we could have been on here for another six hours plus and I would have told you the funny side exactly. of things. And, it, you know, most of the time life was a, a laugh all the way, but it was just, just probably the, the bad sides of life um, that, mm -hmm. you know, were there, but no, don't get me wrong. Um, my life wasn't, it wasn't negative being in the regiment. It was the best time ever. You mm -hmm. know, it was absolutely brilliant. And it taught me a lot without a doubt. In fact, it, you know, in terms of motivation, drive and never giving up. Yeah. So. Yeah. Cool. Okay. Well, thank you, everybody. Thanks. No, nope, uh, thank you. Cole. It was great well, to thank see you. you. Right. Uh, have a good day. See I'll speak to you later. Take care. <laughs> see you later. Bye-bye. Right. Bye, guys. Cheers, guys. All, All right. Right. Cheers. Thank you. Thanks very much.